Okay, we are still in the book of Matthew. We will be, because it's 28 chapters long for, for quite a bit here. Um, but we are into chapter 3 this morning, uh, looking at verses 1 through 12. That's Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And I have page number 1499 in the Pew Bibles. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the foot of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I went to um, college at Stanislaus State in a little over, well, 20 years ago, and uh, Periodically, there would be this group uh, that would show up on campus, and they would stand in the kind of courtyard area there, and they would hold these signs that said, repent, or, you know, the end is near. And uh, sometimes this would result in a confrontation with someone who was offended by their message, particularly if, for whatever reason, they decided to speak their message out loud there in the courtyard. Uh, but, but most of all, people just ignored and tolerated uh, this group. Um, but the funny thing is, though, I, I don't know if I see that all that often anymore. I don't know. I don't see people on the street corner holding signs like that anymore. And, and I started to wonder to myself, why is that, you know? Um, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think it's a good thing because th- that method is largely legalistic and ineffective. Um, But it's a bad thing, I think, because it just kind of reveals that our our culture and their understanding of Christianity has ebbed so low uh, that people won't even be offended by by people holding signs and telling them to repent anymore. But then I thought about it. Well, why why is it legalistic and ineffective? 
And I think it's ineffective because it's too confrontational without being relational. So you can't really appeal to somebody's heart if the, the first encounter you have with them is this sort of like condemnation and judgment, uh, pure confrontation, right? Uh, and it's legalistic because basically the me- message is you're bad, you do bad things, so you better shape up and stop doing bad things, which the diagnosis there is relatively true, but, but it fails to take into account just how radical the solution to our problem requires, right? We, we need to do more than, than shape up and stop doing bad things. We need to come to know the God who has the power uh, to forgive us. Well, I mentioned this group because uh, we've now fast-forwarded 30 years in the book of Matthew. Uh, We've left chapters 1 and 2, which is the uh, narrative of Jesus' birth, and Matthew's introducing us to John the Baptist. And it kind of seems like John has the same message and the same method. Uh, We we get this picture of a a wild-eyed prophet who lives out in the wilderness, and he's eating bugs and and honey, and he's wearing a leather belt, and he's got this message of repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming near, and and if you don't repent when the king shows up, he's going to throw you into unquenchable fire. Is that really what's happening here with John the Baptist? Is Is he no different than a modern sign-holding religious zealot. Well, we know from the Gospel of Luke uh, that John the Baptist is related to Jesus. We don't know exactly how. Uh, We also know that John the Baptist is a uh, son of a Levite and a priest. Zechariah, his father, is a priest, which means that John was raised as a Levite to be a priest. And so somewhere along the line, uh, his ministry began to take on a slightly different flavor than that of a priest. And so we're told in verse 1 of chapter 3 that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Then in verse 4 we learn that John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. And this, is, this is quite a picture. Well, who, who is this guy? That's, that's out in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. So I think Matthew's doing a couple things here. First, first what he's doing is he's, he's helping us understand kind of some of the character of John. This is the kind of person that, that John is. He, he's a minimalist. He's not worried about money. He's not worried about fine food. We had some friends over last night who brought us some steak that, from the cow that they bought, you know, and, and it was so good. And, and I don't think John was sitting around thinking, I need to get me one of those steaks. He, he wasn't worried about that kind of thing. Um, and so he wasn't attached to the things of this world. You wouldn't be able to m- manipulate him with wealth or with power. But Matthew's also doing something else here with this description of John. He's, he's intentionally reminding us of the great Old Testament prophet, Elijah. In First Kings, or sorry, Second Kings chapter 1, Elijah, we're told, had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. So by mentioning that this is how John is also dressed, Matthew is cueing his largely Jewish audience that somehow John is connected to Elijah, the prophet. Later, Jesus will describe John this way. He will say, Truly I tell you, among those born of woman, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
So Jesus is drawing this, this sharp line between John the Baptist and all those who've come before and all those who now come after him. And John is the greatest in the line of all those who've come before. And yet anyone who enters the kingdom through this full revelation of Christ that is now here will be greater than John the Baptist. And so what this is really doing is it's, it's showing us that John the Baptist has this Old Testament prophet flavor. We're to understand John, we have to think about him as an Old Testament prophet. So this is Ezekiel. He's an Old Testament prophet. This is his message. He said, Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent! Turn away from all your offenses. Then sin will be, or then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. It's a very similar message to John the Baptist's, right? And this message is actually repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Once you, start, once you get into Isaiah, all the way through Malachi, this is a very, very common theme. So it's important to know this, right? We, we can't read Matthew chapter 3 through the lens of our culture. We have to understand John, how the people of Israel would have understood John. His message would not have sounded like a legalistic demand to stop sinning or go to hell. It would have been a very familiar message echoing all the way back through the prophets of Israel. It would have sounded like Ezekiel's message here. It would have sounded like a plea from the covenant God who loves them and has done nothing but constantly be patient with them and pour out grace upon grace to them to turn from their sin Don't let sin be your downfall. You need a new heart and you need a new spirit. Don't die in your sins. Turn from your sin. Come to God. He's willing to forgive you and welcome you into his kingdom. If only you'll turn from your sin and trust in him because he takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. Notice John is also in the wilderness of Judea, right? He's not out in, he's not going to Rome, right? He's not going to Greece, John is basically preaching to the church here. We can't think of him or his message as being for a secular audience on a college campus for those who wouldn't understand anything of what he's saying. Like the Old Testament prophets, John is speaking to the people of Israel. His message is for the covenant community. His message is for the church. And John is a Levite. He's in line to be a priest. He's got accepted religious credentials. He's known by the people of Judea. So he's not being confrontational without being relational. His his message is for those who know him and who should know better. He's not a stranger on the street. He's one of their pastors. Pleading with them that if they love their sin more than God, then they will not be part of the kingdom when it comes and that that kingdom is coming soon. Uh, The Old Testament also predicted uh, that God would send a messenger to go before the Messiah. Uh, Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, said this. He said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, Later in Malachi, uh, he identifies this messenger as Elijah. 
He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so if you are part of John's original, or sorry, Matthew's original audience, and you had this great wealth of Old Testament knowledge, Matthew comes along and just in a few short strokes describes John in such a way that would automatically cause all of this Old Testament ideas and pictures of this prophet to just emerge right into your brain. Specifically, Elijah, because of the way John dresses and because of Malachi's prophecy. And so you can see Matthew just tying all this together in a few short verses. But then Matthew quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which is another passage predicting the final Old Testament prophet who would come before the Messiah. And it sounds almost exactly like the passage from Malachi that we just read. So in verse 3 of Matthew, it says this, This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. So again, Matthew is taking this rich Old Testament imagery, right? And he's, he's pointing to this person of John the Baptist, and is saying, hey, this, this man who is predicted in the Old Testament, John is that man. But Matthew quotes Isaiah instead of Malachi. Remember when we just read Malachi, Malachi's words were, uh, he's going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord, right? Um, and that's actually what will, it will be like for those who don't repent and return to God. But I think there's a reason Matthew quotes Isaiah and not Malachi. If we dig a little deeper into Isaiah chapter 40, uh, I think we get this picture, a clearer picture, of who Matthew was trying to say John the Baptist is. See, Isaiah wrote chapter 40 about a hundred years before Jerusalem was destroyed and exiled into Babylon. And he wrote Isaiah 40 to the generation that would be exiled into Babylon. And this is what he says, and we actually heard these words earlier in our assurance of pardon. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And the very next verse is a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So Matthew is telling us that when John's voice is calling in the wilderness and preparing the way for Jesus, that it is a voice of comfort. And so when John says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, this is what he's talking about. He's saying the time of comfort has come near. The time of God speaking tenderly to his people is here. The hard service of the exile is over. Your sin has been paid for, so repent of your sins. Don't miss this kingdom that is coming. And we know that this is the message that the people heard because Matthew tells us how they responded to the message. Verses 5 and 6, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. See, somehow along the line, the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, and our culture became words of judgment and condemnation. But these, these are words of gracious invitation. 
These are words of a sovereign, loving God, full of compassion and mercy and grace, inviting people to leave the misery of their sin and to come and to experience the comfort of his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. Now, whatever was happening out in the wilderness with John the Baptist eventually came to the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. So in verse 7, we're told, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath, from the coming wrath? Uh, Two weeks ago, if you'll remember, I mentioned that the the Pharisees were the conservative religious scholars of the day, and the uh, Sadducees were the the liberal religious scholars of the day. And what I meant by that was uh, that the Pharisees, they believed every word of Scripture was true. They were going to stand on that no matter what. But they loved being right more than they loved knowing the one who was always right. They loved feeling like they were always doing the right thing rather than worshiping the one who truly always does the right thing. And the Sadducees, well, they they thought they knew better than God. They thought that surely God was more like they thought he should be than how he has revealed himself in his word. Uh, The Sadducees had no problem denying core doctrines like eternal life or cutting out large chunks of scripture if those things didn't seem right to them. And so it's strange to see them both coming to John together because they usually didn't have common goals or, or common enemies. And we don't know if they're coming to be baptized by John, um, which seems unlikely, uh, but we all, <clears throat> excuse me, they also may be coming just to kind of see what all the fuss is about. But John has some pretty harsh words for them. He calls them a brood of vipers, which is basically offspring of snakes. <laughs> Your father is a snake, is what he's saying to them. Or your father is the devil. Later, uh, Jesus will refer to them as the same thing. Uh, This was actually a common uh, phrase that Old Testament prophets used when referring to uh, the religious leaders of their time as well. And then John says, Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Which is a strange question. uh, Because it kind of sounds like He's actually shocked that they think that they could be forgiven for their sins too. And it's not because their sin is the unforgivable sin. It's because of what he says in the next verse. He he tells them what they're missing. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So John is saying that if you are truly repentant of your sins, Pharisees and Sadducees, then if you are willing to humble yourself before the Lord and admit your sin and submit to a baptism of repentance, then you had better produce fruit that is worthy of being called the fruit of repentance. Which may have been a really hard thing for the Pharisees and Sadducees to wrap their minds around because outwardly, they did a lot of the right things. Um, You see, there are many religious ways to avoid God. One is the conservative way of avoiding God, which is to lower God's standard down to something that you can actually do, and then you do it. This is what the Pharisees were doing. They'd reduced God's law down to something that they could keep. Now, granted, what they had reduced it down to was something almost impossible for the average person to actually keep and do, Um, but they had reduced it down to something that they felt like they were actually keeping. Uh, And so it would have been extremely hard for them to imagine 
uh, that God could possibly expect any more from them. And it would have been very difficult for them to find something within their own lives that they thought they needed to repent of. And then there's this religious liberal way of avoiding God, which is just to change God's standard, right? It's to call something uh, good that God has called evil. It's to say whatever God's word says about something, well, that's just mythical and, and unknowable, so we'll just substitute whatever in seems right to us. And so they just make up their own standard of right and wrong, which of course they're also able to keep as well. And so it would have been just as hard for the Sadducees to imagine that God, if he even existed, would have any problem with them either. And so at the end of the day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are trusting in their own righteousness. They're trusting in their own understanding of God. And then John goes on to say, And do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. See, I think this is the most common religious way of avoiding God. See, if a Jew said, I know I'm right with God because I have Abraham and my father, what he's saying is that whatever's going on in my heart— However I live my life, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. What really matters is that I was born into the right family. I performed all the right religious rituals. And I think all the right things are true. And as long as I have all that wrapped up, I don't have anything to worry about with God. This would be like someone telling themselves, I know I'm a Christian and I know I'm going to heaven because I believe Jesus died on the cross right? I believe all the right things. I was baptized, and sometimes I go to church. You see, we can't be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who put their confidence in their own goodness, but we also can't place all of our confidence in the fact that we were born into a Christian home, or that we think the right things are true, or that we've participated in the right religious rituals, because John's words are very clear. He says, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. No matter what we say we believe, no matter what rituals we perform, no matter what home we were born into. But, is John saying that producing fruit is necessary for salvation? Is that what John is saying here? Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. And the answer is yes. Yes. That's exactly what John is saying here. That's why he commands the Pharisees and the Sadducees to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Later in Matthew, Jesus will say this about the church age. He says, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Whew. 
See, it's the one who stands firm to the end who will be saved. It's the one who holds on to the truth of who God says he is and who God says we are that will be saved. It's the the one who continues to produce fruit that is worthy of being called the fruit of repentance all the way to the end who will be saved. Because of this, you can be sure no immoral person, impure or greedy person, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So don't be deceived. So is this salvation by works? No. No. You see, John the Baptist is giving the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the crowd and us the law. He's trying to show them and he's trying to show us that the law of God cuts deeper than we could ever imagine. Not only do we have to be perfect to be saved, but once we are saved, Guess what? God doesn't lower his standard. He expects citizens of the kingdom to continue to live holy lives. To to enter the kingdom is to come underneath Christ's rule and reign. It would be absurd to say to your king, yes, I know I'm under your rule and reign, but you know what? I don't like some of your rules, so I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Later, Jesus will say, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus doesn't say that just to hear himself talk. He's the king of this kingdom that has come near in him, and he expects his citizens to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And any tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So what are we supposed to do? I don't know about you, but if I look at my fruit, I'm not sure it measures up to this. In fact, I, I, if, I, I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. The more I study God's word, the farther I feel like I get from perfect. So what, what are we supposed to do? So the people were coming out to John. And they understood that they had sinned and failed to be who God called them to be. And, and they were truly repentant. And they were truly sorry for their sins. And so they agreed with John And with God's word, and they confessed their sins, we're told. And confession is a wonderful thing because in confession, we really deal with guilt. If we're guilty and we try to justify why it's okay that we did what we did, or we try to make excuses or blame others, then then we minimize our guilt. But in confession, we admit our guilt freely. We we stand in in front of the train of truth and just let it hit us. So here's an example. I didn't just forget about those people who are poor and in need. I ignored them because they don't matter to me. And my heart is full of lust for comfort. I didn't just have an affair. I didn't just get caught up in this thing that happened to me. I I committed adultery. I I intentionally broke a covenant. I don't just drink too much. I'm a drunkard. I'm not overly concerned about my land or my stock portfolio. I'm greedy. I didn't just have a little disagreement with that man at work. I'm actually angry at him. I have contempt for him, and I'm afraid of what he will cost me. Do you see the difference? See, in true confession, we don't don't minimize sin. We, We cut to the core of what Scripture says is true about our heart 
and about that sin. But if you're like me, you don't like to do this, right? Because when we, when we dig our hands into the earth of the reality of our hearts, it's hard to admit. We, I prefer to think like, oh, you know, I just did that and this and that, and that's fine. I probably should do that again. But, but to really pause and to think like, what, what did I do that for? What's going on in my heart? That when, when that thing happened in my life, that action is what emerged right out of my soul. And then and to find out what, what that heart thing is and then repent of that. Whew. When we do that, it can be despairing. Because we know that the problem is deep. We know that that sin in our lives emerges out of a heart. We know the problem is that there is pollution in our hearts all the way to the core. And these people who came out to see John are confessing their sins. But what do they do about the pollution? What do they do about the fact that they sinned because they're sinners? How can they wash away not just their sins, but their sinfulness? And so John baptizes them. He's like, I got nothing else for you guys. I'm so, I'm so glad you confessed your sins, but, but I, I get it. So let's just get in some water and, and we'll see if we can wash this all the way. Because as far as we know, no one had ever baptized people for repentance like this before John. But, but what else could he do? These people needed more than just to confess their sins. They needed to be washed and cleansed. But the baptism of John wasn't enough. It couldn't wash away their sins. And so he says, yes, I baptize you with water, sure. In my baptism, we all, <clears throat> we all acknowledge that, that we have a problem and that there's something that needs to be washed and cleansed and made pure, but guess what? Oh, guess what? One is coming. And he is more powerful than I am. In fact, I'm not even worthy to perform the most menial slave task for him. I'm not even worthy to remove his filthy, dirty shoes. That's how great this one is. Oh, and when this one comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, when, when your confession and your repentance is finally combined with the Holy Spirit washing through your very soul, then you will know that not only have you been forgiven, but your guilt and corruption have been washed away. And you will be a new creation in Christ who will be able to produce fruit that is worthy of being called the fruit of repentance. And only he can do that. I can just prepare the way. So look to him. Believe in him. But if your faith isn't real, if your repentance isn't true, he's still going to baptize you. But he will baptize you with fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor, gathering the wheat into his barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Let's not forget that John is talking to Jews here. He's talking to the covenant community. He's talking to the church. And he's saying that, hey, the, the wheat and the chaff, they grow up together throughout this life. Right? But at the end of the day, if your faith isn't real and your repentance isn't true, you will not be gathered into the barn. But here's the beauty of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We were made right before God completely by the work of Christ 
and we are made holy throughout the rest of our lives by the work of Christ in us. We don't earn our place in God's kingdom, and we don't keep ourselves in God's kingdom. He does that. Yes, we put forth effort, but it's effort that he is the one empowering in us. And so when we're confronted with the law of God, which we have been in this passage, when we're confronted with the law of God that says we must produce fruit worthy to be called the fruit of repentance, and we must be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, that's the condemning voice of the law meant to drive us to the good news of what Jesus has done for us. We must not let fear drive us to try and produce fruit on our own because that's impossible, as you all know. And when the voice of the law is loud, like it is in this passage, then we run to Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness and his perfect life for us and his atoning death in our place and we cling to what he has done. And then we confess our sin. We remember our baptism. We eat the bread and drink the wine. And we keep looking to the one who has washed us with the Holy Spirit and who has made us his own by his death and covered us with his righteousness. And when we constantly return to him and what he has done for us, then fruit grows. Super duper slow. Frustratingly slow. But it grows organically because we are a new creation he makes us the kind of tree that does produce fruit and so we will because that's what fruit producing trees do but you don't scare a tree into growing fruit you don't command a tree to grow fruit you water it and you nurture it with the good news of God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness that is that is infinite. So if you're here this morning and this message has raised guilt in your heart about your sin, that was the purpose of this passage when Matthew wrote it. But we must not feed our guilt with fear because that's what Satan wants. We just bring it to the gospel. We, we bring it to Christ, our King, who, who washes us with the Holy Spirit, and we remember that He has died for sinners and that He has paid the price. One theologian said, For every one look we take at ourselves, we take ten looks at Christ. Because I don't know about you, but if I had to, if I had to know that God loves me based on my fruit, I would I would be in despair. Right? I look to him. We look to what Christ has done. We look to his promises and his love and his mercy and his grace. And those are the things that we continue to feed our souls with. Because God always gives what he requires. And so we keep our eyes fixed on the one who says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and it's hard, Lord, to hear your law. It's hard to hear that it is necessary to produce fruit. And yet, Father, we have no hope but to take that 
and run to you. Not only for renewed grace and forgiveness, but renewed grace to be who you say we are in Christ. And so we're thankful, Father, that we can constantly cling to you. We're sorry our hearts are so easily drifting away and getting caught up in our own lives and forgetting the wonder and the beauty of it is to know you and to walk with you. And we thank you, God, that we are ushered into your presence by grace through faith alone, not of works, so that no man can boast. Thank you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.